So now our focus uh, has been looking at 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. So you can go ahead and turn there if you want to, and we'll read it again before we press forward. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. It says, See what marvelous love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called God's children. And that is what we are. For this reason, the world does not recognize us because it is not known Him. Dear friends, we, we are now God's children, but what we are to be in the future has not yet been fully revealed to us. We know that if Christ reappears, and we, we kind of focused last week on the word if, it's not really meaning if, it means when, but uh, I think that particularly to the people he was speaking about too, I think it, the word if might have been employed meaning in our lifetime. Uh, but anyway, it says, but, um, it says here, uh, but, we, but what we, do, what we are, are to be in the future has not been fully yet revealed to us, but we know that when Christ reappears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Part of, thus part of my prayer that we take all of him in that we can take in, right? Because we are changed to the image of the Christ that we see. And we're all looking through a glass dimly, we know that, but to the degree we can see him, we can be like him. So we know that if Christ reappears, we shall be like him because we'll see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed upon him purifies himself so as to be as pure as he is. So as I told you a few weeks ago, there are several words associated with the arrivals of Jesus. And I told you that there were several arrivals the scriptures speak about, his birth being the first one. Uh, I also told you that each appearing of Jesus coincides with an age in the church. Now, that's, it's not a huge deal that you know that, but I think it's a good idea to know it because you begin to see patterns in scripture if you know certain things. And this is one thing that though the Bible doesn't come right out and say those words, it's very obvious if you're studying it, okay, that every single appearing of Christ preempts an age of the church. When Jesus first came, I mean, and, and, and that makes sense because as we've learned in here, we follow our Lord in all things, right? If he's united with God, we are united with God. If he died, we died. If he rises, we rise. Everything, right? We follow him. So his first appearing uh, was associated with suffering. And so the first age of the church is one of suffering as well. It's automatic. We should know that automatically. Okay? Uh, and, and, and now we ended our teaching last week, or the last our last teaching actually, begin, beginning to read 1 Corinthians 15 about the rapture and the resurrection of the body. And we will get back to that, <clears throat> maybe, perhaps even in this teaching today, but in reviewing that message, <clears throat> I thought it was wise to back up just a little bit and fill in some gaps, especially that part I just mentioned, how in this age right here, the one we're going to be raptured from, the one we need the hope in to purify ourselves during this dispensation, it is a following of our Lord's appearing where we suffer even as he suffered. 
And so I want to connect that dot before I go further. I think that maybe going further might have been a little premature. So, uh, and again, our general rule of thumb is always this, that if it's true about our Lord, it's true about us. So now there's a basic order to salvation. There's an order to salvation, just as there was an order to the fall. If you remember when when Adam and Eve fell, the temptation went from the outside in, did it not? There was external things and considerations, and it was all working to gain the internal real estate of their spirit. The enemy wanted to disconnect them from God and change their nature so they were no longer compatible with God. And it worked from the outside in. And, and ironically, this pattern is found in 1 Corinthians 15, where we're going to wind up possibly later today, but we're going to look at a part of it right now, just a few verses, so you can, if you want to turn there, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 42, and we're going to read in verse 49, and it shows this pattern where I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42 through 49, says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, but it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Verse 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, meaning Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterwards the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust, and the second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are all of those made of dust. In other words, we are just like our father Adam. He was made of dust, we're made of dust, right? He says, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. That's pretty, pretty clearly laid out there. I mean, that right there encapsulates a lot of things we've talked about even the last year, right? So now, so we begin as dust, a natural man, and wind up a spiritual man. Now, in regard to the kingdom of God, once you've entered into the kingdom, however, we start off with a reborn spirit, with a soul that's kind of wishy-washy and a body that's still dead. So now the process is working from the inside out. You guys see this? The other way it worked from the outside in, now we're working from the inside out. We, we, we already know that this is a progressive work. You begin when you first are born again with a reborn human spirit. All things are of God, right? The Bible says that we have been made one spirit with him, right? Okay, we are working out the salvation of our souls. And in the end, we will receive the full redemption of our bodies. But suffering comes first. Suffering comes first. In the same way that... The glory that Jesus, remember in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, before he was even betrayed, remember they were still in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was after they had already left 
their um the 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 the, the meal that Jesus said he had so long to eat with them, and he wanted them to every time they did this in the future to do this in remembrance of him, and that he so loved those who, with whom he was eating that he vowed he would not drink of the of the uh, the. Uh, the grape uh, of the the wine until he was reunited with all of us together in his father's kingdom. What a beautiful declaration of love towards us, right? And after that, when they went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he was praying alone with his father and asking the disciples to pray as well, he prayed that what we have have coined as his high priestly prayer. And he prayed over these disciples. And not only them, he said this in his own words. He says, and not these only, but also all of those who will ever believe on me through their word. That means that was you he was praying for that day in the garden. What a significant thing, right? What a wonderful, beautiful reality that my Lord, while he was still in the flesh, prayed for me, right? And part of that prayer was, he says, Father God, it's my desire that these whom you have given me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, the glory which I had before the foundation of the world, right? So we know that when Jesus suffered on the cross, he was raised in glory. And remember, he told Mary, you know, don't touch me because I have not yet been glorified. I haven't yet seen the Father, right? And so he went to the Father and he was glorified. And so that process, we are going to follow that process. But you and I are still in the suffering phase. But when we rise, uh -huh, it's going to be a different story, right? We're raised in glory. We just read that in 1 Corinthians 15, right? So we follow him in all things. Uh, so now suffering can take a lot of different forms. Uh, from the very simple to the extreme. Simple suffering can take the form of... Uh, simply not living as other people in the world are free to do, right? Uh, they are free in this life to pursue their own pleasures, and we are restrained in our what we are allowing ourselves to do that we might serve the Lord, right? There's certain things we just, and, they, and they're not always bad things. There's just some things we can't allow ourselves to do. Isn't it true? And, uh, and a, a great passage to illustrate this is found in Psalm 73. It's a psalm of Asaph. Now, you can turn there if you want to, or I'll just read it to you, either one. But it's Psalm 73. And that shows that this has always been true, even under the Old Covenant. God's people have always been those people who God said, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and I will receive you. And you will be my sons and my daughters. Amen. Part of that reconciliation with God, that oneness with God, is the suffering of being separate from the world, not being like them. It doesn't mean we don't rub shoulders with them. It doesn't mean that we do not try to help them. It doesn't mean we don't live an example before them. We aren't to become recluse and live a hermit far away from the world. We live before them but we don't participate with them. Amen? And Psalm 73 does a great example revealing the inner struggle that goes through every heart who loves the Lord at some point or another. It says, God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. But as for me, Asaph, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. For I envied the arrogant, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, this is a great analogy also for the day we're living in. Because we have a bunch of, um, you know, uh, I forget how you pronounce that. It's an uh, um, oligarch. Yeah, oligarch. We have a bunch of oligarchs all over the place. The, the, the people that are in D.C. right now. And, of course, 
uh, even in some respects, almost more than that, their counterpoints are uh, big tech. All of them are a very, very small group, and they're all controlling everyone else, their behavior, and, and, and they are the ones that are reaping all the rewards. I mean, this is all about them receiving power and them receiving money and them being powerful and all that and making all the small little minions look up at them in awe and wonder, okay? And this is the kind of feeling that Asaph felt. He's looking at these people who, it seems like they just don't have a care in the world. They've got all the money in the world. They're proud. They're arrogant. They walk strutting themselves and they're ungodly. And he's like, you know, have I have I chastened my soul for no reason? Have I placed myself underneath God's hand for no reason? Because it looks like they're the ones winning. Are you following? Okay. So it's a good comparison statement for we're reading this right now, and we're only reading this really so we understand that this is a mild form of suffering that every child of God has to go through in some way or another. And ASAP does a beautiful job of laying out the inner struggle inside the soul. But it's also, a, just as a, a side issue, it's also a great overlay a great ex, um, uh, expression of the world we're living in right now in America. Yes, ma'am. One thing I've heard is that with the, that particular group that you're referring to, they profess to be proponents of law and order. Mm-hmm. What they're really saying is our new law and our new order. Yeah, exactly. Whatever we say. Precisely. Absolutely. So now here in first, uh, let's start, let's, let me go ahead and start back in verse one again. It says, God indeed is good to Israel, to the pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die. And their bodies are well fed. They are not in trouble like others. They are not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness and the imaginations of their heart run wild. They mock and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing waters. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They are always at ease and they increase their wealth. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for no reason at all? For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. If I had decided to say the things I was thinking out loud, I would have betrayed your people. When I tried to understand this, it just seemed hopeless to me until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. Indeed, God, you place them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They, beca- they come to an end, swept away by terrors, like one waking from a dream, Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. Boy, I wouldn't want to be in that place. Right? When they went, essentially, he's saying by waking up, he means when they die and appear before him and they can see life for what it really is, God himself will look at them and despise their very image. I wouldn't want to be that guy. Right? So he says, you know, I was looking at them and from the outside, it looked like they're winning. You know, I mean, they're doing their own thing. They're boasting their own agenda and they're strutting their stuff and it works for them. And here I am, beating myself daily, keeping myself under, not allowing myself to engage in the same things that they engage in, and it looks like I'm almost punished for it, and they're rewarded. 
And I began to wonder in my mind, am I doing this wrong? Maybe I've been serving the wrong guy. Maybe I've been afflicting myself for no reason. Because you know what? You know, the, it, it, you know, just logically speaking, the guy with the blue ribbon, usually you call them the winner. And they're the ones holding the blue ribbon. I don't understand this. And he says, and it was just hopeless for me to, it was crushing my soul when I contemplated these things until I came into the sanctuary of God, until I came into God's house. And then I understood where this whole thing was leading for them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks real good, but God is placing them in slippery places. And they're going to fall to their destruction in their end. In their end. You don't see it yet, but it's coming, Right. So, you know, so this is a great illustration, I think. This great, this is a great verse. Another very practical example, though, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So you might want to turn there as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's a very practical example of, of this most basic and simple type of suffering. Because really, in your everyday, unless you are thinking about those people that have got 15 yachts and 20 houses and and um, don't owe a thing to anybody, or even if they do, they're free and above the law and all that stuff, unless you're thinking about them, you don't really always feel that oppressed. You know what I mean? I mean, when you get up and you go to the store and you're able to buy food and come home and eat it and you're living, you got a roof over your head and clothes on your back, you don't feel super, super oppressed. It's only when you consider how well other people are living that are doing godly that all of a sudden you feel a little oppressed. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So by and large, so when I say this is a simple type of suffering, you know as well as I do, it could get much worse, right? Uh, but in the simple form of suffering, this is another example in 1 Corinthians. It's, it's actually very practical. And I want you to hear Paul's words Make sure you really pay attention to them. And I'll try to draw certain points out to you because Paul here is, is addressing marriage as just one example of many of the many dynamics in the Christian life. And he is suggesting as a single man himself that it would be wise if you're not married, don't get married. Because if you do, you're no longer free to just pursue God. Because now you're caught up in your mate. And he doesn't say that's a bad thing. Don't read into the passage something it does not say. Paul doesn't say that's bad. You're doing what you ought to do if you're caught up with your mate. God designed it that way. And in the middle of that, you also learn a lessons and connect with God through the things you experience with your mate. God's going to get you where you need to go, regardless of what path you take. Paul's just suggesting you're going to have less hurdles to jump over if you don't do it if you did it alone, just you and God, you do it with somebody else, it's going to be a bumpy road. That's all he's suggesting here. And by the way, he's right. Yep. But, I didn't expect that quick of a response, but, <laughs> but uh, for everybody that doesn't know, who might listen to this, she also sings her husband's praises too. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I know that. I know that, honey. I know. I'm just saying that for other people. Uh, but, you know, the truth of the matter is that, uh, that yeah, it, it there's a bumpy road if you're married, and Paul is only pointing that out. It's a very practical consideration. So go ahead and read it. It says, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. So that already tells you God's not saying this as a command. If this was coming out of Jesus' mouth, it would be a command by the very fact that it came out of his mouth, right? But I, as one of his servants whom he has entrusted to share truth with you, am sharing this from the perspective of a human, right? And just telling you some good advice. 
Okay? That's all, that's what he's saying here. So verse, starting in verse 25? Yeah, that's what I, yeah, uh-huh. Um, verse 26 now, he says, I suppose, therefore, that it is good because of this present distress, meaning the suffering time we're living in, this age of the church we're in, we're not in the age of glory right now. We're in the age of suffering. And because of the fact that we are fighting against our bodies and we're walking uphill through knee-deep mud and it's already difficult enough, don't make it harder on yourself than it has to be is what he's getting at. He says, I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a Mary, even if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh. And I would spare you this. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. Do you see how even right here, he doesn't bring it up? But what's he really talking about? The return of the Lord, isn't he? I mean, every Christian would automatically pick that up, even though the words aren't used. We already know what he's getting at. The time's short. So don't get caught up too much in these earthly matters, right? That's, that's clearly what he's getting at. It doesn't take a theologian to tell us that. Verse 29, But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they didn't have one. Those, uh, those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. The stuff that we read about Asaph and what he was viewing is passing away. That order of things isn't going to last forever. It only looks that way right now. This world is on a course. And we know it according to 1 John, it's on a course leading to destruction, right? And he said, but all that is passing away. But I want you to be without care. You can hear the father heart in this apostle, right? He's like, you know, I love you guys. And I know I want to see every one of you made perfect in Christ. And I want you guys to take the less encumbered path from here to there. Move out as many obstacles as you can out of your way to make it as easy as possible, right? I want you to be without care. Um, uh, he who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he might please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he might please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she might please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a lease on you. I love that Paul is very careful to make sure they understand, I'm not trying to constrain your behavior. This isn't a law. He's making it very clear. I mean, these two or three statements he's made since the beginning here, he's made this clear. This is the commandment of God. I'm not saying you've sinned if you've done it. I'm not trying to put you under restraints, right? He says, and this I say for your own profit, not that I, not, not that I may put a leash on you, but for, your, for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distractions. Why? Because the time's short. Don't get caught up in all this other stuff, right? And even if you do marry, 
You should live as though you weren't. And you need to understand the context, obviously, in which he's saying. That doesn't mean you should not care about the things of the world that you might please your husband or please your wife. He's not saying that. He's saying that you shouldn't, you as a unified force should be working towards the kingdom and that should be your shared interest more than just being caught up in each other's pleasure. What should be your pleasure collectively should be furthering the kingdom of God. That's what he's getting at, okay? <clears throat> now, <clears throat> Paul said in his second letter to Timothy, you can make a note of this because I'm going to probably read it before you ever get, get there. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1-6, through 6, he said, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my personal departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. In other words, I have gone through suffering. I've said no to a lot of things I could have said yes to, right? I poured myself out. I didn't pour myself on me. I didn't spend myself on me. I spent myself on, on, on Christ and on his body. I poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Now, remember I told you there were a lot of words for the word return of the Lord as well, right? There were four of them we talked about, Perusia, um, Maranatha, um, uh, Epiphania, <clears throat> and Apocalypsis. This one right here is, is Epiphania, appearing, his appearing. All those who have loved his appearing, Epiphany, his, um, the bright shining of his appearing, of his coming. Now, of course, we also know that our suffering can take a more somber and serious turn of physical assault and death as well. Don't we know that? I mean, Paul ran his race, and he and he endured quite a bit of both, didn't he? I mean, in fact, he was stoned to death and was raised from the dead. Lucky him, he gets to die again, right? I mean, so I mean, he, he endured an awful lot. Days, how many days, uh, how many times he spent out on the sea? Sometimes shipwrecked, uh, sometimes stranded, many times without food, without proper clothing. Um, you know, he went through an awful lot for the sake of the gospel. He had been poured out. And, you know, so we also know it can take a more somber term. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, just verse 10 alone is an example of it. And you don't have to turn there again. Just make a little note of it. I'll read it to you. Jesus was encouraging the saints in Smyrna. And he said, do not fear any of those things which are you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Same crown of life Paul just mentioned, right? So there, so we have the we have the 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 typical kind of not that oppressive form of suffering, and then the far end of pretty extreme suffering. So now this morning before. We continue on in 1 Corinthians 15 where we left off last time regarding the resurrection of the body, which of course takes place at the very appearing of Christ that we've been talking about, right? That's why we start talking about the redemption of the body is because it's what happens when we see the Lord at his return. That's the very return we're looking at with our hope that purifies us, right? Those are all one event. So um, I, I thought it was important that we look at a few examples of how Jesus' first coming was one of suffering and how ours correlates with that. Then we'll look at a couple of verses that deal with 
how Jesus' second coming is connected to glory, and therefore our uniting with him is connected to glory. Okay? So we're starting in Hebrews chapter tw uh, 2, and uh, a lot of these I'm going to try to go through quickly, not because I don't want us to really look at them, but because um, they say what they say, and we don't have to spend a lot of time with them because they're pretty obvious. So Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. It says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for... What does the word for mean? Or, or for, with, this, with this goal in mind. He did this because he had this goal in mind, right? But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the purpose of suffering of death. So we see his first coming was for suffering. It's right there, isn't it? For suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, bringing us... So what's our destiny? Where are we heading? Glory. But we're going through... Suffering first to get there, right? Okay. He says, And bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation mature and complete through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are one. So if he went through it, we go through it, right? For which reason he is not ashamed to call them his brethren. Next one we want to look at is in Acts chapter 3, just verse 18. Just one verse. Acts 3.18. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. What did the prophets say that Christ was coming to do? To suffer. And by the time the book of Acts was written, Jesus had already been risen and says, God has fulfilled this, right? Acts 17 verse 3. Acts 17, verse 3, in this particular verse, Paul was in the synagogue one day and had read the scriptures. And in explaining them, he says, he says, explaining the demonstration that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying that this Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Messiah. He was talking to Jewish people. But you notice he brought up that Christ had to suffer, Right? Acts 26, verse 23. This is Paul when he stood before Agrippa. And he described to Agrippa his personal conver uh, conversion on the road to Damascus. And what it is about the message of the gospel that the Jews were persecuting him for. He's explaining this to Agrippa. And he says that the Christ would suffer that he would be the first to rise, the first, not the only, the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles, right? He was just going to be the first one to suffer and raise from the dead. Now, you know in context what he's talking about. Jesus rose from the dead not only physically, but also rose to a new way of living So, as an example for you and I. We already know in the Old Testament there were several people that rose from the dead, right? Jesus wasn't the first person to rise from the dead. That's not what he was talking about. It meant to rise to a new way of existing, right? Though it did include the physical resurrection from the dead. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. Uh, this, in, in this verse right here, in verse 41 of Acts 5, the Jewish council had arrested 
from what we can see, all of the apostles, and charged them as criminals against the law. Afterwards, they beat them and released them due to the counsel of Gamaliel, who, by the way, used to be the teacher of Paul, right? Who, that was who, the, who trained Paul. And Gamaliel said to all the counselors, he said, you know what? I don't believe what they're saying. But that noteworthy miracles have been wrought through these people's hands is evident. And from all we understand, miracles only accompany, are only accompanied when God is with someone. And lest we find ourselves in the position of fighting against God, let's relist them and just see what turns out of this movement of theirs. Maybe, in other words, he's saying, let's consider the possibility that maybe, probably not, but maybe we're wrong. And even after that, they still beat them and then sent them out. That's where we read this verse right here. That's what was happening. It says, so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. I submit to you that there are very exceedingly few churches in America who would understand what was going on there. That most people in America, if they were put under that kind of oppression and put in prison, would be banging on those doors and yelling out and screaming and saying, you have no right and blah, 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 because the only focus is on their rights. Their focus is not on the fact that they have been honored to suffer for his name. Is everybody with me? That's why I'm bringing it up to you, because you know what? That they might come here. It might come here. In which case, you need to have, and I need to have, this kind of a mindset. Not a, well, gosh darn it, I'm an American. I have rights. The Lord might lead you to use your American rights. In a court of law, he, he, um, he used Paul, not in a court of law, but he used his appeal to Rome as a Roman citizen at one point, and it released him. He, I'm not saying God would not do that, but, where, but I know the one thing about Paul was that, God, that Paul's focus was the kingdom of God, not his personal safety. He poured himself out. That's the question for us, right? In any way and in every age, the cross is an offense to the world. It always has been. In Paul's day, it was an offense against the Jews who relied upon circumcision for salvation. And so almost every attack against Paul was because he was teaching there was no more need for, for circumcision. That's what That was the basis for their attack against him. Okay, And you'll see that in the next verse we're going to read. Um, I, th I, think, I think it's in one of these verses anyway. Um, it's not in the next verse. We'll see it eventually. Uh, yeah, it's in when we get to Galatians, but we're not there yet. So in Acts chapter 9, verse 16, it says, this is Jesus talking about Paul, who was Saul at the time. But um, he remember the man um, that God called to uh, take him into his house and to lay hands on him so that he could see again. And this guy was saying, I don't know about that, God. Don't you know this is the guy who's persecuting the church, right? And this is what Jesus told that man. He said, I will show Paul how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Must. Not, 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 he's not making a statement of, you know, it, it might come up and he's kind of got a choice. He could go left or right. No, he's saying, if he's going to be my servant, he must suffer. Otherwise, he can't be made like his Lord in all things, right? So uh, now Galatians chapter 5, verse 11. I hope you're noticing we're just, usually, we're just reading snippets. 
We're not reading huge chapters. We're reading little snippets that illustrate and drive home this point. Galatians chapter 5, verse 11. He says, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why did I st- do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross would cease. You see what I was telling you a minute ago. When Paul taught uh, um, taught against circumcision, that was the basis for which he was receiving suffering from his brethren, from uh, from Jews around him. He says, you know, so, uh, you know, he was saying, you know, if I were to preach circumcision, the offense would end. I wouldn't be under attack anymore. The reason for the attack is because I'm preaching the gospel that says that salvation is not through circumcision, but through faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Messiah. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, he says, As many as desire to make a good show in the flesh, these would compel you as Christians to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. It's okay to get born again, but go ahead and get circumcised too, and that way you can sidestep getting persecuted. Paul's like, don't do that. I know that circumcision is nothing. You as Christians know circumcision is nothing. But in this particular case, for you to get circumcised, you would be removing the offense of the cross and painting a picture before these Jewish people that is incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, don't do that. Right? Me, what's yes. The verse? This is Galatians 6, verse 12. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. What's he saying here? But you know what? Suffering is part of the cross of Christ. It's part of being united with your Lord. And don't try to sidestep it. Uh, but the, you know, the Gentiles weren't, um, weren't exempt either. The preaching of Christ, I mean, that, that's what bothered the Jews. The Jews didn't like this whole departure from circumcision. But the Gentiles, they didn't like the message of Christ either. The message of the cross of Christ has always been and always will be an offense to the world. The preaching of Christ and a life of conformity to his holiness elicited persecution from the Gentiles as well. You know, the, the greatest portion of people that Paul ministered to were Gentiles. And the people that they were dealing with were other Gentiles. Paul dealt with Jewish persecution. These Gentiles dealt with Gentile persecution. They were being persecuted for different specific reasons, but all of it had to do with their affiliation with Christ. With Paul, it was because he preached against circumcision. That that elicited persecution from the Jews. From the Gentiles, it was, you can't do these sexually immoral things and, and prostitution, stuff like that, and sacrificing to your gods and be holy. That's not possible. That made them angry. You follow? That's what the persecution of the Gentiles was. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 4, it says, 1 Thessalonians 3, 4, for in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know it. What did he say? For in fact, we told you before when we were with you, Paul speaking, referring to he and Silas and others who were with them in Thessalonica, that we would suffer tribulation just as it did happen, and you know it. 
if you were to keep on reading, which we're not going down, going to all the way down to verse 13, this persecution is tied into the word parousia, which is the return of the Lord. I'll read it. It's in verse 13 of the same chapter. That's the point he's leading to. The suffering led towards the rapture, led towards the return of the Lord. May he who makes your heart blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming, the parousia, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Amen. That's where he was aiming. Are you seeing? I told you that the coming of the Lord is brought up all the time in the New Testament, and it's directly tied to the the core foundational doctrines of the gospel. Uh, look at um, uh, 2 Thessalonians 1. Uh, we're going to read 3 through 7. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're focusing on verse 5, but we're reading verse 3 through 7. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. This time when it brings up the revelation of the return of the Lord is talking about apocalypsis. It's that other word I mentioned. So in verse 3 it says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards one another, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and your faith and all your person in all of your persecutions and tribulations which you endure. That's just other words for suffering, isn't it? Right? But but what were they doing in the middle of the persecutions and their tribulations that they were enduring? He says, he says, We are bound to give thanks always for you, brethren, as is fitting, because of your faith grows exceedingly. The suffering didn't call them, cause them to call into question their faith. Their faith was strengthened. Just like we heard in that video. Historically, you look across the history of the body of Christ, suffering always increased the faith and didn't decrease it. Yeah. Did people depart from the faith during times of suffering? Yeah. And all we did at that point is just clean out the house, right? God's cleaning his house out. But those who remained were stronger in faith than they ever were, more bold than they ever were. They didn't become more cowardly in proclaiming the Christ. They became more bold in proclaiming Christ. You remember what happened to Paul? They drug him out of the city, stoned him to death. The saints gathered around him, raised him from the dead, and he went right back into the city and preached even more boldly, the scripture says. Right? You can't stop the church. You cannot stop the church if we are living as Christ has called us to live. Now, the kind of panty-waist Christianity that's, that's, uh, that's exemplified in the body of Christ in, in major world countries right now, like America and, and the UK and other places like that, yeah they, they, yeah, they can walk right over the church because we're, our goal and our, our focus is not where it belongs. We're not thinking like the early church, right? But that we've already determined we're going to start thinking like the early church, aren't we? We're going we're gonna to make foundational issues foundational again, right? Focus on these things. Because we will be ready. Amen? Even if you and I never really see the kind of persecution we're talking about, we need to be ready if it did come. Right? And our focus is not on the persecution, it's on our Lord. And that's what makes us ready. Amen? We're not focusing on, I'm just going to be strong during persecution. No, no, no. If your focus is on, I'm going to be strong during persecution, they're going to wipe the floor with you. 
But if your focus is on, I love the Lord, I'm committed to him, and there's nothing in this world, what can man do to me, right? If that is your mindset, then yeah, you're you're already in good place, right? And that's what we're talking about. That's what we're viewing here in these passages. And so... Fleshly effort, and the yes, spiritual effort. one that's yeah, one that's birthed out of my union with him. Yeah, absolutely. That has strength. That has staying power. But they not only showed a strength of faith that was growing, but it says the love of every one of you also abounds towards one another in the middle of this persecution. It's increasing. Your faith is increasing, and your love is becoming more pronounced in the middle of this opposition. Verse five, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you suffer. Since it is right, righteous for God to repay with affliction those who are afflicting you now and to reward with rest you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation, the apocalypsis, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ from heaven with his powerful angels, meaning when he appears, when he returns for us. That's when it's going to... In other words, there's no promise here that there's gonna, that the record's going to be set straight while you're still on terra firma. It might, but it's not a promise, right? <laughs> We know, I mean, the church has gone through ages of tremendous persecution and up to this point have come out of those persecutions, right? Many of those people, though, in the middle of it didn't see the day of coming out, right? But the only complete end is when he returns, right? That's the promise. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. It says, And yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So you saw the verses we were reading before showed that it was destined, predestined, required that our Lord suffer. Now we're reading passages that says that now you're following after your Lord and you must suffer, right? First uh, Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach. Because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Right? Philippians 1.29. Philippians 1.29. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. That's why those apostles who were in prison and beaten Count, uh, rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for his namesake. This verse right here. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but for your belief to have real power to it that allows you to stay connected with him and long and hold on to him even in the middle of suffering. 1 Peter 2.20. Again, just one verse. 1 Peter 2.20. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer for it, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Commendable. I don't want to miss out on that. If I am, unfortunately, in the position of being persecuted for Christ's sake, and I want to, I want to be persecuted while doing good, 
and I want to take it patiently. Because if I do it that way, it's commendable. Right? I mean, I, I mean that really, I told you, we taught, I actually taught a message on it one time. I think I even called it that. If you, uh, we, uh, we, we were looking at, it was the, I think the message was called Living for the Attaboy. Because uh, that's what it really means when the Bible talks about that uh, uh, we're looking for that statement where Jesus says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's the commendation we're talking about right here in this verse. He says, that kind of suffering is commendable before God. God will give you an attaboy for that. Well, you know, I got news for you. There's nobody on this planet I really care if I get an attaboy from. But God, you bet I would spend everything to get it from him. Right? Because that has real meaning, right? My father, the almighty God in heaven, pats me on the back and say, I'm proud of you, son. Well done. I mean, who doesn't want to hear that, you know? Well done, daughter. Wow. I will, I, I, I'm so looking forward to that, amen? I mean, every, every earthly child desires to get that type of affirmation from their natural father, especially those who have hardened their heart to believe they don't want it. They want it even more than anybody else. But the reason why is because that is a pattern for what we're going to have. What we do have, Amen. I've had that, had time, times when the Lord told me He was proud of me, and the, and the few times He's done that where I actually heard it, I was I was taken back because it's not at a time when I would have thought He would have said that. I mean, I was doing something that was right, but I would have never thought this was an attaboy moment. You know what I mean? You know. But He saw it as such and told me so. Jesus had an attaboy, didn't he? As he's coming up out of the water with John the Baptist, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What is that but a great attaboy from the father, right? So, uh, you know, these are the kinds of things that, are, you know, when we do this, we receive com uh, um, commendation from the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be easily troubled. Right? He says, even in suffering we're blessed. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, just a few verses lower. It says, for it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Well, that's kind of clear, right? Also, going on in 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm, I'm going to read uh, verses 13... I think it is, through 16. I thought I was going to go to 19, but I guess not. Um, it says, As you share in the sufferings of the Messiah, that's one of the most clear statements right there. Up to this point, it's just been talking about suffering, suffering for his namesake. Here it's saying we are sharing in it, which is really the point of what I've been getting at, right? If our Lord did, did it, then we are one with him in that we're united with him in his suffering, right? It says, you share or you experience koinonia, koinonia in the sufferings of the Messiah. Rejoice so that you may also rejoice with exceeding joy at the revelation of his glory. In other words, if you go through suffering the right way, you will be glorified. That tells me there's a way to go through suffering the wrong way. Right, a person that bows up and becomes offended, those are the people that take part in the great apostasy, the great departure from the faith. They became offended, right? 
That's the wrong way to suffer. Amen? The right way is to say, I am so honored that even the world in all of their darkness sees enough light in me to associate me as belonging to him. Amen? That if they're going to persecute Christ, they have to persecute me because they can see no difference. I am honored. Amen? Thank you, Lord. So he says, Indeed, as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah, rejoice so that you may rejoice with great joy at the revelation of his glory, the epiphany of his glory. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, blessed are you, because the spirit of glory and of Christ rests upon you. None of you, however, should suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he should not be ashamed, but should glorify God with that name. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Amen? I think that's verse 19. I skipped down. So, if his first appearing was for suffering, it therefore follows that when he returns again, it will be for glory, right? So let's look at a few of those verses. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And this is, the, this is all the easier for you and I, I think, to um, imagine, because when you and I, in whatever imagination you have in your spiritual picture you have in your head of the return of the Lord, I doubt that it is a picture of a guy riding in the town and beat up blue jeans and a tore up t-shirt and a beat up jalopy. You, you got an idea of something that's glorious. Amen. Okay. So it's not so hard for us to connect with this, is it? We already believe his returning is going to be glorious. He came as a suffering lamb. He's returning as a ruling lion, right? So it's, it's easier to envision that. So in 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 6, it says, The hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Now that has many meanings. The first and most pointed one is Jesus had to partake of all the things that you and I are going to partake of. He had to go before us, right? But not only that, he's also talking about you and I because we're working in his field, right? So the hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say. May the Lord give you understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evil evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. Notice that Paul recognizes that the sufferings going through is not just for Christ, but for the name of Christ, which name rests upon every one of his kids. So when Paul suffered, he suffered for those that were born again as well, for his brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory eternal glory. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also <clears throat> live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Right? 
It goes on that says, if he's if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. That's not a statement saying that if we're faithless, he's still faithful to us. That's not what that verse is saying. If we are faithless, to be faithless is to deny him. And he already told us what happens then. He will deny you too. He What it's saying here is God, our faithfulness does not affect his faithfulness. He is faithful. Period. He can't deny who he is. Right? Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Again, just one verse. Romans 8, verse 17. The verse before that talked about that we are children of God. And it picks off in verse 17 saying, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. Everything's together. Everything's koinonia. Everything is a shared experience, right? We are children and heirs. See, I want you to see that the heirs part is the thing he's talking about. Right now, you're children. But, you know, if you were to become offended and deny him and depart from the faith, the rest of this verse doesn't apply to you, right? But if you continue, you are an heir. You become an, you become an inheritor of the glory if you suffer. Are you following? It's the suffering part that causes many, not some. You need to hear what Jesus and what Paul were saying. It's not going to be a small group that leaves the body of Christ. Many will be offended and depart from the faith. Many! I mean, a great number will depart from the faith being offended. Can you see how the wrong kind of teaching can set up a whole group of people who otherwise know the Lord when suffering comes for them to be offended and leave? We already Yeah, we have seen it already with just a small amount of suffering. But can you see how the wrong kind of teaching, the wrong kind of church, the wrong kind of community of saints can literally lead to that? I mean, and again, I'm just pointing this out and I want to be, I, you know, I always try to be careful about this. I hope that you know that. I mean, I say it a lot, so you should know it. We're not like we used to be, thinking, gosh, everybody should be like us because we got everything right. We've got, we got some things right. But we got so many blindsides, it's not even funny. There's no way we could be doing everything perfectly. We don't even know everything. And, and even some things we know, we're probably doing those slightly wrong because we don't know, Right. No one's saying that, okay? Lots of room for improvement. What I am saying is that I think that a great majority of, again, first world country, and the reason why I say first world country is because third world countries, that kind of Christianity doesn't make any sense. In first world countries, it's about the only place that kind of thing happens, okay? But in first world countries, I think the majority of the churches are leading towards this kind of destruction. The great majority of them. Like I told you, when Reverend Chan, when Brother Chan went across seas and dealt with people who were under persecution, and he asked them, he said, you know, don't you have any casual Christians here? And they kind of looked at him funny, and they're like, well, no. That wouldn't make any sense. Because if you, if you declare that you serve and know the Lord here, 
you're immediately kicked out of your family. You lose your job. You have no standing in the community. You are an outcast. It doesn't make any sense to be casual. I mean, there's just no room for it in other places, right? Here, there's a ton of elbow room for that. So you see what I'm getting at, right? This whole mentality of, well, of privileged Christianity and, and you know, living your best life now. And yes, I'm quoting that on purpose, and I know that points to a particular person. But, you know, it is what it is. I didn't create that statement. I didn't write that book. But, you know, it's all about this life. And have we not read enough verses already today alone to say our focus should not be about living our best life now? Our best life is then. <laughs> Clearly, this is the time of suffering. Amen? Can you see how a doctrine like that could lead people to be offended when real suffering comes? Well, this isn't what I signed up for. I'm a privileged child of God, bless God. Oh, hold on, wait a minute. Yeah, but you're not in heaven. You're in enemy territory. What do you expect them to do? Love you? Treat you like their own? No. Absolutely not. You're going to be under persecution, right? So he says, <clears throat> Romans 8, 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if, that joint heir means what Jesus gets, I get. We share the inheritance with the firstborn. God, think about that. Jesus said in his ministry to his disciples, he said, don't run away from me, little flock. It gives your father great pleasure to give you the kingdom. Not to just make you part of it, but to give it to you. Give it to you. Right? Joint heirs with Christ. I, I, I know that I don't even get that. I mean, I can begin to try to wrap my head around, stretch it around that like a rubber band, but it snaps before I make it to the other side. I can't quite get that. I can't quite take all of that in because it's just bigger than I am. But it's so big that I can appreciate it. You know what I mean? At least begin to appreciate it. He says in verse, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead now to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going we're to have to wind things up because we're not going to get to where I wanted to get. I kind of expected that, but I haven't been in a hurry either. I don't, I don't want to rush through it because if we rush through it, then what was the point? You want to make sure we get what we get. So in 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Instead, as you share, as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah, rejoice. What should be my mentality? Rejoicing. What was the mentality of those early apostles? They rejoiced, right? So instead... As you share in the sufferings of the Messiah, rejoice, so that you may also rejoice with great joy at the revelation of his glory. That word revelation is apocalypsis, that other word I told you about. At his glory, uh, uh, revelation of his glory. I want you to notice that these are conditional statements. If you do not rejoice in the suffering, but rather bow up at it and reject it and become offended by it, this will not apply to you. You're not going to go from suffering to glory. You're going to go from this temporary suffering to real, true, eternal suffering. Right? You haven't seen suffering. Right? No true Christian has ever really seen true suffering. That's reserved for the world who reject him. Right? All we know are some things that pale in comparison 
I mean, Paul even said, he says, this light amount of affliction that we have to put up with right now is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. It shouldn't even be brought up in the same sentence. It's not worthy to be mentioned in the same sentence. It's like impairing, you know, a pebble on the, on the beach to a diamond the size of a basketball. There's just no comparison, right? You can't compare the two. And he's saying the little bit of suffering we go through here on the earth can't be compared to the glory that we're going to receive. Amen? So this, this, is, this is a spiritual stock market. This is a spiritual investment that you're going to cash in on huge. And that's really not an appropriate terminology because the Bible refers to this as our reward. Our reward. And I don't know about you, but I think that's crazy. Because if I were to give up everything for him, in my opinion, I'm not worthy of a reward. I've barely done what he's worthy of. You know what I mean? I haven't gone beyond the I haven't gone beyond. I haven't haven't gone further than what I ought to do. There's no way I could go beyond what I could possibly do in, in comparison to Christ and honoring him and glorifying him. And yet God looks at you and says, This is gonna be your reward for doing that little bit that you did that you could have done so much more and didn't. But that little bit that you did, that you continued on steadfast and suffered through to the end and did not let go of my name. This is what you're going to get. You're going to share in the same inheritance with the firstborn. That's crazy. I mean, that's, that's not a reward. That's a gift. <laughs> Rewards, to me, are something you get because you did something. And I understand, yes, it is attached to the fact that we did something. But man, the reward, the return, can't be compared with what I did. Man. Amen. So, it says, um, now I forgot where I was. I'm sorry, I got caught up. Um, I thought I was in 1 Peter chapter 4, wasn't I? Yeah, 4, 13 through 16. So I'm just going to read through it this time without commentary. It says, uh, instead, as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah, rejoice, so that you may rejoice with great joy at the revelation of his glory. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, blessed are you because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. None of you, however, should suffer as a murderer, as a thief. I, I read this a while back, didn't I? Yeah. Okay, okay. Then let's go on to, uh, to uh, Titus chapter 2. We're just reading two more verses and then we're going to close out because I can't get to First uh, Corinthians 15, but we will start there next week, which is where we're going to start this week. But I really felt it was necessary to connect these dots because the whole point about the rapture we're going to be reading about and the resurrection of the body in First Corinthians 15 is predicated based on this information. So I thought it was important to go through this. So in Titus chapter 2, and in this, these verses, verse 11 through 15, bring up the word epiphania, just another word for his return, his appearing. Okay, In fact, that's the word that's used, his appearing. So Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 15 says, For the grace of God has appeared, that same word appear is epiphania, with salvation for all people, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope and appearing, epiphania, appearing, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness 
and to cleanse for himself a special people eager to do good works. Are you eager? Because that's what he died for. He died for us to be eager to do good works. Not just, oh, okay, that's, that's not eager. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, we all know, we've all been at the, oh, okay, we've been there. But he says he died for eagerness, amen? So that's what I'm going to give him, amen? That's what you're going to give him, right? Amen? Eagerness. I'm eager for good works because it glorifies him, right? Say these things and encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard what you say. So this was an encouragement, right, from Paul to Titus to the people he was ministering to. And he says, these are the kind of things that you encourage them with, you rebuke them with, with all authority, and don't let anybody disregard what you're saying. It's important stuff, right? And the last one we're reading is in 2 Timothy chapter 4. You can go ahead and turn there now, and that's where we're going to end. 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says, Before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead at his appearing, there's Epiphania again, at his appearing and his kingdom. Now, just so you guys know, this is one of the things I was telling you two weeks ago when we last taught on this. There are many appearings of the Lord. As based as on, best as I understand the returnings of the Lord... And it's backed up by the same thing that the gentleman said that we listened to last week. They agree with that. That there's the return of the Lord when he comes in the clouds and brings the saints that have passed away before with them. And then the dead, the bodies of the dead people in Christ rise up and we rise up to meet them in the air, right? And then we are from that point on ever, forever, physically with the Lord. Amen? And we go on out of this place and then that which was restraining will be removed, taken out of the way. Not really removed, taken out of the way, right? Spirit, Holy Spirit's still here. He's just taken out of the way as something holding back the tribulation, the wrath of God, okay? Holy Spirit's still here. He's just removed out of the way as a barrier holding back the wrath of God. Because if the Holy Spirit was gone, no one could get born again during that time period. We know people do. Yes, uh-huh. Even then, he's still holding it back. Yeah, well... Because everything could happen all at once, but no, everything happens... In, in an order, yes, you're right, you're right. Progressively. Yeah, he could have just... He's gone, Bam. now everything dead. Yeah, you're right, you're right. But instead he... And part of that's his mercy. Still restraints, yeah. Yeah, and so part allows, of that's his mercy. allows more people to, to accept him after. Amen, absolutely. And thank you, God, for that, amen? His mercy is just untold. We just, we just don't know how deep his mercy is, even in the midst of well-deserved judgment, right? Thank you, God. And we are vessels of his mercy. Thank you, Jesus. So privileged. Gosh, we are privileged. So when, when that happens, we are in heaven. We are with the Lord. That's when, uh, you know, presumably the wedding feast of the Lamb takes place. And we, we're there for at least three and a half, if not the seven years. It's, it's either one. I'm not sure. It doesn't matter. But then at his next coming, it says he comes down with his saints, you and I. If you've never ridden on a horse before, you will that day. And it says it's going to be given to us to be clothed in white. White linen, which is the righteous acts of the saints, right? And we're going to ride down with him, 
and we are going to declare war against the beast and against the prophet, the false prophet and all that. And then Jesus is going to set up his earthly reign. The devil is going to be taken by the back of the neck and thrown into a pit for a thousand years where he cannot tempt the nations any longer. And Jesus will reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And you and I who suffered will reign with him. This is where Jesus said in one of his parables, he says, you know, I gave you five talents. He says, here, receive ten. And another parable he talked about, he says, I gave you a little bit. He said, now you will be ruler over five cities. You will be ruler over ten cities. You will be ruler over a county, right? This is when we get our part of our reward. You and I's ability to rule and reign with Christ is based upon how we served him now. Right? To what degree did Jesus rule and reign in you? Well, to that degree, he will allow you to rule and reign in his kingdom. Right? And the reason why we want to rule and reign is not because we want some stupid crown and we want to be able to sit all looking important. It's because what we're doing is we are establishing the rule of Christ in the earth. Jesus has made it the righteous decision to allow you to play party in that to patrol his kingdom and to instill righteousness and encourage righteousness in men of free will because there's still going to be human beings on the earth who have not died, who still have the opportunity to choose for or against him. And in those cities, you will be the extension of Jesus' rule and reign across this planet. Amen? And people will either accept or reject Jesus even in that day. And we will do that for a thousand years. You think that your life is long now and you're putting up with a lot, a lot now? No, nothing. The glory of that kingdom is just going to be a thousand years. And that's considered a pretty short period of time. Right? On our best day, we might wind up living to 100. Right? Maybe 120. You're going to be ruling in real good shape and a real great body for a thousand years. Amen? Glorifying Christ with every decision, every decree that you give from the throne you sit on, representing our Father, representing our God, our Lord. What a wonderful place to be, amen? And that's just the beginning of eternity. We don't even know what's going to come after that. After that, we know that the nations will be judged and you and I will be judging the world. And you and I will be judging the angels. And then will be the end of all things. And that is what probably John was talking about in 1 John, which says, we don't know what we will be. But right now we're his children. Amen? So let's keep on reading. I'm sorry, I get cut up with this because this is, God is so glorious and his plan is just so beyond anything we ever thought. Before God in Christ, again, verse 1 in 1 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. Before God in Christ, Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, I solemnly charge you, proclaim the message, persist in it, whether convenient or not, rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine. I submit we're there. But according to their own desires, they will accumulate teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. They will turn away from hearing the truth and turn aside to myths. 
But as for you, keep a clear head about everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry, your place in the body. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. In the future there is reserved for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his epiphania, his appearing. Right? Thank you, Lord. That crown of life is to know him perfectly to know even as I am known forever that's what I'm going to get crowned with right right standing forever and knowing him forever that's what I'm crowned with I believe that's probably what is being referred to I believe as a metaphor in scripture when it talks about the tree of life that's in heaven with God um, I, I, again I think it's just a metaphor talking about the fruits of knowing God that we will essentially gorge ourselves on the fruits of knowing God for an eternity. Amen. Great. Grace. Grace. Grace.